1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Kunzman, a host of the New Books Network, and today we'll be talking with Wolfgang Marx, who edited a volume commemorating the composer Georgie Ligeti's centenary entitled I Don't Belong Anywhere, published by Bray in 2022. Wolfgang Marx is an associate professor in musicology at the University of College Dublin. His main research interests include Georgie Ligeti, the representation of death in music, post-truth in music, and the theory of musical genres. He also co-edited on Georgie Ligeti, entitled Georgie Ligeti of Foreign Lands and Strange Sounds, published in 2011. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to ask our guests uh, before we start the interview just about their general background and uh, how they came to write or edit their current work. So Wolfgang, how did you come to edit this uh, volume on Georgie Ligeti?
1: Yes, um, I am a musicologist and uh, I studied in the city of Hamburg in Germany where Ligeti lived at the time. So you could actually meet him in the opera house, in the concert hall, or sometimes even on the road. And also we had one of our professors, Konstantin Floros, who researched him, who had written a book on him, and who invited him every now and then to give a talk. So there was a connection somehow. And one of my first larger projects with two friends, still as a graduate student, was working on one with big pieces, Lontano. And that became my first major uh, publication. Book with three authors. I was one of them. And ever since I have been working on them, I was interested in his music. And when I moved to Ireland, that continued. Uh, I've edited another book on him 12 years ago. And uh, this one now last year, because we are now in the centenary year. And so this is a good moment to focus on him again and have another look at where we stand with regard to his work, what's interesting in his music and maybe also in his personality for us today.
0: So just, just to get into the uh, the figure, Georgi Ligeti, where does he stand in the history of 20th century music?
1: Yeah, he was born, well, it's a centenary year, so he was born in 1923. Uh, he became, he started composing around 1940 as a student, uh, before he, as a secondary student still. Um, studied then composition in Budapest, he was. Hungarian, ethnic Hungarian, but also Jewish. And he was in that part of Hungary Hungary, in Transylvania, which had become Romanian after the First World War. So that meant he was a minority already as Hungarian in Romania, and then within that another minority, Jewish. And um, after the end of the Second World War, which he just about survived, many of his family did not. And uh, he then moved to Budapest, studied there and became a composer and uh, had a few years as a composer there, which was tricky because it was the communist regime. uh, The Cold War was emerging and there was very tight control of what composers were allowed to do. After the failed uprising in 1956, he and his wife fled to Austria like many other Hungarians and that's when his career really took off. He became acquainted with uh, Western composers and Western compositions and styles. And that uh, made his unique style emerging that he then developed uh, from around late 50s, early 60s, the micro polyphonic style that he became famous for. And ever since, until he stopped composing around 2002, he was one of the dominant figures in Western composition. He forged his own path, and I'm sure we will talk about details of that uh, throughout this interview, and uh, became... Uh, a model for an alternative way. There was then the big discussion between people who had very rigid structures and rules of how to compose the so called total serialism by Pierre Boulez or Karlheinz uh, Stockhausen. And then people who said, let it all do uh, or go without much uh, regulation, without any rules. People like John Cage, it's all chance, it's all uh, undetermined. And he tried to find something in between, something between enormous determinism and chaos. He was also interested in lots of... uh, uh, scientific in, uh, theories and developments and also in literature and other cultures and he had later developed an interest in chaos theory and fractal geometry for examples which is about this about self-identity and about the large scale and the small scale and how things relate to each other and how determinism and, uh, and chaos might interact and so he became I think one of the most important composers of the second half of the 20th century in a western context uh, that a lot of people were influenced by
0: so the title of the volume I don't belong anywhere surely it's referring to his minority status and I guess his not belonging to any particular compositional school but forging his own way was this do you do you think this was a conscious reaction against people like Bules Stockhausen and like you said people on the other side people like Cage and maybe Warren Feldman or was this something that was natural?
1: It was probably a mix of both. I mean, he had this thing, he always said, he he said that not just in this particular interview, this is from an interview with a Russian musicologist, Marina Lobanova in another book. Um, he said things like that a lot. He felt, once he had left Hungary and had to leave Hungary, he was uprooted in a way. He was then coming to the country of the people who had killed many of his family members. And he settled there and he was probably okay there, but it was always something that was not entirely his home. He was fluent in many languages, in obviously Hungarian and Romanian, in German and English, in French and Swedish uh, we, uh, because in the 60s he got a lot of gigs teaching and also compositions were commissioned from him from Sweden and uh, so he was clearly somebody who lived in the world even though he spent most of his time after he left Hungary in Vienna then in the city of Hamburg and then the final three years again in Vienna uh, but yes he had always this feeling that it's he, they, they actually the quote continues is part of the intelligentsia of Europe um, and so far and, th- and that is something that is transnational that is not Hungarian or German or French or Spanish or whatever it's more like a, a certain class but he felt he belongs to all of this and to nothing in particular
0: so getting back to the book in one of the essays, it was uh, mentioned that there was a, a sound experiment on Latano, one from 2005 to 20, the other one taken from 2021. Uh, what did you find surprising, or what do you think was brought out by these uh, listener responses on the piece Latano?
1: Yeah, this is uh, the essay by Britta Sveers, who is uh, a professor in Bern in Switzerland. And she was actually one of my co-authors uh, in, of the book I mentioned earlier, my first major publication on Lontano. And when we did this, in, this was published in 1997 originally, uh, we did what everybody almost does who works on Ligeti. We look at what the composer himself says about his associations, his uh, uh, ideas when he wrote this. He has spent an awful lot of time talking about this. He has given many interviews, he has written many texts, given many speeches. So uh, when you go to Czech, and just did that uh, about uh, six weeks ago, go to Basel in Switzerland, where all his sketches and letters, all his writings are. It is You can spend weeks there going through all that stuff and find more and more. And so everybody focuses on the associations that Ligeti has. In the case of this particular piece, Lontano from 1967, he names a number of uh, ideas, a number of influences, for instance, uh, etchings by uh, 18th century Italian artist Piranesi, Carceri d'Invenzione, the um, Prisons of the Imagination, which create um, impossible geometric uh, structures that, that looked in three dimensions, couldn't exist, a, a bit like some of these things by the Dutch uh, artist Maurits Escher we have things that uh, are also impossible in three dimensions, but can be drawn in two dimensions. And so he also said he is uh, uh, influenced or inspired by a painting by the German 16th century painter Altdorfer, the Battle of Alexander, uh, which is a massive painting in a museum in Munich, which covers an entire wall, and there's one corner where the sun breaks through uh, thick clouds, and it's a, it's a very bright light that uh, sort of illuminates an otherwise very dark uh, landscape. And the third one is uh, a note by Keats. And so, yes, you go along, you look at that, you say, okay, uh, where is a moment in the music where that might be equivalent to that breakthrough of light, for example, and you find one and you talk about And that's fine. That's what everybody has done all the time for decades now. What Britta has done uh, is... Uh, what, what I think nobody has done yet so far uh, forget about what he says look at what people listening to it actually think or feel or perceive so she went to some of her students in two different institutions and played them the piece and said okay what do you feel can you give us an association what what kind of emotion does it trigger what kind of association association do you have and uh it turns out it's not quite like what Ligeti said. Um, Of course, you can't expect them to specifically say, oh, it is like that painting, that would never work. But is it some about the emotions that come out are not as positive as Ligeti sometimes uh, uh, evokes them or describes them, and there's certainly something that I think is a good idea to pursue further. It would be interesting to do that with other pieces and to say, okay, this is what Ligeti has said, this is what he intended, this is what uh, uh, influenced him, but do people actually? Sense a similar feeling, a similar emotion. Have they have a similar reaction when actually listening to it? Particularly if it didn't tell them all that beforehand, and it turns out that's not necessarily the case. And in so far, this opens up really a new way of engaging with Ligeti's music, which I think might uh, lead to further studies of a similar nature. That sort
0: of reminds me of someone, someone like Roland Barthes. When he mentions the death of the author, this might be the death of the composer, maybe?
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, that is something that, in a way, it's not new. The death of the composer started not long after the death of the author, some 40, 50 years ago. And what we discover in our post-truth world in which we live today is that even the author was never really dead because... um, this is not about the book, but if you if you look at a movie like Tar that was in the cinemas or still is to this day, where where the argument is is it true, as is argued at the beginning, can the artist be separated from the piece of art from the work, and the film tells us no, it can't. It's impossible, and the artist's mis- uh, uh, the artist's behavior influences how the art is perceived, and in a way, uh, that is the general attitude today, I think, and we've learned that. Why the theory was there that the the death of the author, we we should only focus on our own reaction and the work exists on its own once it has been created. Certainly today that's not true and that's not what happens in practice. We are always associating the artist, the artist's life and the artist's uh, behavior uh, with how the work is perceived and how the work is performed and certain things are not performed if... uh, Uh, or are not uh, displayed, uh, are not uh, in any way received uh, if uh, we have a problem with the artist. In another essay
0: by Manfred Stank, uh, he explores uh, Ligeti's, uh, I guess, influences on being influenced on older compositional techniques. Was this... Was this uh, a normal thing for Ligeti or just a few uh, at a certain era or just a few pieces?
1: No, that happened all the time. And in fact, that happens probably with most composers all the time, but Ligeti talked about it a lot and also Ligeti uh, combined influences from many different directions at the same time. In this particular case, this is about uh, particularly uh, one of his piano etudes, Galam Boron, which um, is from the later mid to late 80s. And uh, during that period, he was influenced by two things. He was influenced on the one hand by the discovery of particularly African music, so of ex-non-European music and particularly the drumming patterns in African music that also, for instance, influenced people like Steve Reich, but in different ways. And uh, the other one was indeed this early or this high medieval uh, uh, Ars subtilior, or more generally, fourteenth uh, fifteenth century uh, polyphony. That is incredibly complex. Uh, they developed a notation that is uh, allows them around that period to run different parts as it were, at different speeds or in different breakdowns. Which have, So it's not just like in normal, let's say, Western or tonal Western music, where you, if you have a polyphonic fugue, you still have the same uh, time signature. So you wouldn't change that. You have uh, something that runs against something else. Um, it comes in a bit later, but it still runs in common time or in 3-4 and 6-4, whatever it is. But what happens there is you can have the same melody running against itself at a different speed um, or at a different breakdown, whereby in one part, maybe, one unit is divided up into two smaller units. We normally, and of course, have uh, 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 one half node breaking down into two quarters, breaking down into eighths. That's what why they are named this way. We can also have um, of course a division by three which is not the tra- standard thing but of course you couldn't do it you can have triplets uh, you can have quintuplets sextuplets whatever but you always have to notate that it's complicated it's not the normal thing for them at the time the triple division was a normal thing and they could have two against three so you would have something that has a dotted half against a single half and then a dotted uh, quaver against a single quaver and so on. And so the one one part would be 50% slower because of all the dots but it would still be notated exactly the same way. They would exactly only notate one line and two different people would sing it in different ways because they knew i i divide by 3 you divide by 2 and then they had sometimes colored them in red or at this time even some note heads in half red so that means i normally do 3 division by three. But at this point, I only do two or the other way around. I normally divide in two, but at this point, I divide in three. So it give, gives you an effect like a hemiola. So it's something that is incredibly complicated. And it was incredibly uh, small number of pieces that were written this way. But he was influenced by that because what he wanted to do was write music that is rhythmically very complicated, very complex. He also discovered an American composer uh, living in Mexico at the time, Conlon Nancaro, who wrote stuff like that for a player piano, for an automatic piano, uh, which allowed him to do incredibly complicated uh, um, ratios of tempi against each other, which human beings could never play. But it inspired Ligeti to, to to say, okay, from all these angles, from African uh, percussion music, from this uh, medieval late medieval, a high, highly complex rhythmic mu- uh, structure, and also from what Nankaro does, how can I try to do something new? As a composer, you always want to do something new, something original, something that hasn't been done this way before. And what Manfred Stanké does in this particular essay is he uh, talks about the one particular source that he discovered and he was studying with Ligeti at the time and then became his teaching assistant at the, at the Conservatory in Hamburg, so he talks a lot about uh, um, what the atmosphere was like in the class, where lots of people came from different countries and continents and brought in whatever they discovered, so new pieces, also popular music, for example, that influenced Ligeti, and he talks about this particular piece, Angelorum Salat. Uh, by a composer named Rodericus, about whom we know next to nothing, uh, like about many other people from that period, uh, which is one of these incredibly complex, rhythmically intricate uh, pieces. And he looks at that and looks at this particular uh, Etude Galamborong and shows how certain ideas that are present in that piece from about 1400 can also be found in this uh, piece from the 19th. 80s but it's always complex it's all, never a single it's never clear it it's only that that uh, influences it he picks that now because it's an interesting comparison but you can also do something like that and it has been done indeed elsewhere about uh, ideas that come from say pygmies uh, and their music in Central Africa or indeed with uh, with Nakaro's uh, uh, music for player piano
0: are the influences so abstracted and fragmented in the in the in the composition that you wouldn't know where it came from?
1: Or no, you can't are... recognize it specifically. It's more the principle. Ligeti said many times, "I'm never copying one to one. I'm never doing exactly the same thing. I find interesting the concept, and then I take the concept and use it in a different way." And that way, uh, it's never a copy. Uh, It's always something new and something unique. And anyone who tries to say, is it exactly that? Where can I find the source? will never fully succeed. You can find ideas. You can find concepts. You can find principles. You can never find an exact copy. He didn't like... Literal copying. He did it once or twice, particularly in his opera, which is a bit earlier, from the late '70s, Le Grand Macabre. But he didn't like what he what was then regarded the general postmodern idiom, which was neo-tonal. And his music is never entirely tonal. And he, some of it was when he was still in Hungary, because that was required in order to have it performed. But since he came to the West, he became an atonal composer. And um, yeah, he. Uh, becomes someone who is inspired by, who looks at principles also in the non-musical parts. I recently had a chat with uh, Heinz Otto Peitgen, a mathematician who was a friend of Ligeti's and who uh, was in Germany developing these concepts of fractal geometry and uh, uh, in the 1980s and 90s, and they met in the 1980s. And he said the same about that. Ligeti was inspired by this mathematical concept, and he found a principle at work that he himself also wanted to realize in his music. But it's not a copy. It's something that he felt that enriches his view of what he does and how he does it. But it's not something where you can then go and say and go back and say, is this something that if he hadn't encountered fractal geometry, he would have never, never have written this piece. And probably he would have written something very similar still. He was inspired. He incorporated aspects of it. He uh, followed uh, an outline. And he also talked uh, about it a lot. Some of his interviews... Uh, talk a lot documentaries about things like fractal geometry for example and he was quite knowledgeable about that um, so uh, he showed that he had lots of connections to all sorts of areas literature of course as well poetry as well as novels in different languages because he could uh, read quite a few languages uh, so inspiration came from anywhere but that means you can never pin down one particular source mm-hmm. In
0: your answer, you, uh, you mentioned what's usually become a buzzword now for lots of different issues, the word postmodern. And you mentioned in the introduction in a question, uh, what do Ligeti and his music have to say to us in our post postmodernist age? What did you mean by post postmodernist?
1: Yeah, that's a wordplay. When he wrote this opera, *Le Grand Macabre, in 1978, he said he was cons- uh, his conception originally was for an anti-opera, an opera that goes against the grain of what opera is usually meant to be. But then someone else came along, Maurizio Cargill, and wrote a piece called Staatstheater, State Theater, that was already an anti-opera, the way Ligeti had imagined it. So he sort of cracked a joke and said, now I have to write an anti-anti-opera. And that became that piece from 1978. So I was referring back to that when I said, is he a post-post-modernist? Because he didn't like being labeled that. Several people did that, particularly in the 1980s, because his style took a turn, as some perceived it, towards not quite tonal music again, but using melodies again, which he hadn't done before to the same extent, and becoming, some said, a bit more conservative. He didn't think it like like that. And he saw regarded people as post-modern, for instance, the American minimalist composers, or also, also some European minimalist composers. That is entirely tonal, although not quite the same way that tonal music used to be um, in previous centuries. And he didn't like that. So um, he rejected the term, but of course, you are not in control. So lots of people still applied it to him. And... I feel to some extent he was a bit postmodern because he was influenced by lots of other people, as we just discussed, and other styles and other uh, um, even extra musical ideas. But for me, the main difference is if what you make of all that, when you put it all together, if that becomes something that is more than the sum of its parts, if it becomes something that is not entirely orally reliant on the source. Then I think it transcends postmodernism in a way, and I think he got to that point. So in a purely technical sense, because there are things you can trace back as principles, as concepts, as structures, you might be able to call him postmodernist. but I think in an aesthetic sense, as someone who used all these bits and created something new and really something entirely new, um, and it's never just a single source you can trace it back to. In that way, I think you should not call him a postmodernist. In fact, I'll, there are now a number of conferences coming up on Ligeti. His actual birthday, the centenary, is in May, and there will be quite a few conferences. And I, I will give one paper on that particular topic. And I'm just starting to flesh that out. Uh, these thoughts, um, how we can uh, talk about that in in more specific terms. So, yeah, I would say. There are postmodern influences, and technically, you might be able to call him a postmodernist, but aesthetically, I don't think it's useful. Um, Most of us actually maybe unknowingly become
0: aware of Ligeti's music in the uh, Kubrick 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, What other films or television shows were, were Ligeti's music? employed by the director or producer.
1: Yeah, I mean this is of course the one that everybody has heard of and probably also most people have seen. Kubrick generally of course uh um, took pre-existing music and used it, which means you have to take a recording as it is and then cut the movie according to the requirements of the music, which is very unusual. Most directors don't do that. Sergio Leone did that with uh, Morricone's music as well, um, to some extent, but it's very unusual. But yes, you're right. Most people know of Ligeti. It's also Ligeti's music uh, in Kubrick's film thesis in The Shining, and then there's this short piano motif in... um, Eyes Wide Shut, which is also by Ligeti. But uh, we have one chapter in the book by Julia Heimerdinger, uh, uh, who is a musicologist in Vienna and organizes one of the upcoming Ligeti conferences in May. And she uh, has investigated where else was this used. And it turns out in, an, in a surprising amount of uh, films and TV series. I have to admit, most of whom I hadn't seen uh, are the only one. No, one or two, actually, that that I had uh, seen was Godzilla, uh, the uh, version from 2014, where there is one of those apocalyptic moments that uh, maybe remind me almost a bit of that Alexander's Battle painting that we mentioned earlier, where there is uh, lots of people dying and lots of destruction. Uh, And then we get a moment from his Requiem, which is also featuring in the um, 2001 movie. Uh, Then there are uh, fantasy movies, uh, sci-fi movies. Um, There is uh, something from Finland, from France, from Germany, uh, from um, 2010, of course, the the, um, follow-up on 2001, 2010, uh, the year we made contact. Uh, which also features Lux Eterna from uh, by Ligeti. But it is a number of pieces, a relatively small number of pieces, particularly uh, the Requiem, Atmosphere, Continuum, and uh, also the Chamber Concerto and the Cello Concerto that come up again and again and again. So a few of these pieces, maybe uh, directors, directors, um, found that in another movie and liked it and they said, I want to use that too. I suspect it's rather that than they being really familiar with the pieces separately for their own sake. So, yeah, um, Heimerdinger produces a list there of a number of pieces. It starts actually with Kubrick. He was the first one. Uh, there is uh, Fist of Fury, Hong Kong. Uh, Ghost Story for Christmas is a BBC series. Um, the Shining is Kubrick again. Uh, French movie Merci La Vie, and um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that is something some people may also have seen, the Tim Burton version also has the Requiem, and um, then some uh, documentaries uh, which have probably not seen that many uh, or have had that many people watching them. Killing of a Sacred Deer, maybe another movie that people have seen, which has the cello concerto and bits from the piano concerto in it. So actually, Jorgos Lantimos, who did that movie, has another one coming out this year. So I'm actually curious to see whether there will be some other Ligeti again in that one.
0: In the last part of the volume, Reading Ligeti, it's dedicated to newly discovered or unknown primary sources. Were there any surprises that you, uh, it completely, I guess, changed your perception or changed your your way of thinking about Ligeti that were that was unveiled?
1: Yeah, we have three sources there. One is an interview he gave. Um, that was to be broadcast on the BBC and then for some reason it didn't happen. And so this is uh, released for the first time. Then the Paul Sacher Foundation in Basel, where all of Ligeti's materials are uh, acquired recently, the correspondence uh, with his publisher, Schott in Mainz in Germany, and also all the uh, um, corrections that he made when the uh, uh, scores were typeset and then printed. And um, we th- uh, thirdly have a r- correspondence between Ligeti and Aliu um a stage designer and painter who was for a while his partner in the 1970s and early 1980s. And they lived together in Berlin, except for half a year in 1972, when he was in Stanford in California uh, teaching there and also uh, researching computer music in particular and other things there and during that period they had a correspondence going which otherwise they didn't need and for me this is particularly interesting because that was completely unknown that that existed it was um discovered by the author uh, of uh, by of, of that chapter vita quodite uh, in lithuania in an archive and um We translated there in German, originally the letters, we translated Ligeti's letters to her in extract. It would be much longer if we did it all. And it's quite fascinating because it shows European, who's never before been to America, sort of uh, arriving there and looking, what's life like here? It's all very strange. It's so different. I cannot go anywhere because distances are too far. So some things are very prosaic. So how do I get a bank account? It's very difficult if you don't know anything about how the system works but also things that are, of course, more related to music. How do you teach, uh, what it's like, and then experiences with American orchestras and conductors about how to, um, uh, how to uh, make sure that they get the, his music performed in, in the way that he expects it to be performed so that the effects are there the way he intended them to be and in one particular case with Subin Mehta, who was who's still around of course but was then very young upcoming conductor he was not very happy at all he is that he's only doing this because he thinks this will maybe further his career and he didn't do it very well and wasn't open to suggestions and he was much better with other more traditional pieces he uh, uh, conducted in the same piece, in the same concert. But later on, he worked with Sei Ozawa, uh, with whom he was much happier. So he was more open and understood, he said, the piece better. And also, all sorts of things how he then, little anecdotes almost, how he got thrown or uh, was uh, um, sort of leaving the concert hall and then couldn't get back in because um, they, no, uh, he couldn't get through the main entrance because he didn't have a ticket and he couldn't get through the back door because nobody knew him and they said, oh, hey, who are you? You can't get in here. And so it was tricky for him to get back in. And So it's, it's quite fascinating and also funny to read and maybe that's one of the most interesting bits because nobody saw that coming. That was an almost accidental discovery. Whereas the... Um, the correspondence with his publisher is also interesting, but that's not that much of a surprise. We, we knew that existed so far. People didn't have access to it, but um, it's interesting because he went through three different publishers in the West Universal Edition in Vienna for the, at the beginning, then Peters, and then Schott, who remained their main publishers for about 40 years, still are today, uh, but with whom he worked the longest. And then it's very difficult for his intricate, uh, very complex um, um, scores with all the rhythmic intricacies that we talked about earlier, uh, where he says this has to be just above that in order to work and be perceived correctly by the performers. And and there's a lot of back and forth uh, about that, uh, also about the use of color sometimes. So that's, that's very interesting too. And it's actually, now that he's been dead now, um, he died in 2006, so it's 17 years. And uh, you don't expect that much to come out anymore at this stage, new material. And it still does occasionally, and that's quite fascinating.
0: So I think that's all the time we have for today. But before we go, uh, two, two just questions. If someone would want if our what if our listeners would want to get into ligety's music do you have any pieces that you would recommend and then the last question is is there any future projects or any uh things coming up that you, you would like to share with our listeners
1: yeah um I think Lontano, the piece we talked about earlier, uh, that Britta Swears wrote her article about, with, with about what the intention of the composer versus the reaction of the audience, I think is a good piece to start with in on 1967. Um, also, maybe The Requiem from 1965. And uh, some of the uh, piano etudes, there are maybe two or three in particular that do work with a specific psychological effect where all the times, all the parts keep rising. And there are so many parts at the same time, even though it's just one pianist playing. It's incredibly difficult. Not many people can play that. So that if one part ends at the right end of, of, of the keyboard, it has to end, it can't go any further, but the others keep going up. And therefore, it gives you the oral impression as if it keeps going up forever. That is called the Shepard effect of an American psychologist who discovered it, uh, where you can create an effect as if something rises, keeps going up forever. And that piece is called The Devil's Staircase. Um so that uh, that is maybe something that is uh, uh, one of his uh, the, the 13th Piano Etude, Escalier le Diable, in French, he preferred for many of his pieces French titles. Uh, so maybe that is one also that uh, one can look at, because that focuses very much on the ath- aspect of rhythm as well, whereas these earlier pieces with the micro texture are about spatial effects, which is why they ended up in, in all these movies and particularly science fiction movies. Yeah, and uh, what's coming up, I mean, Ligeti is a big thing this year because of the centenary, so there are quite a few productions. If people are in cities with opera houses, look out for a performance of his opera, Le Grand Macabre, which is great fun. Uh, There will also, I'm sure, where there is an orchestra, there may well be pieces by Ligeti added to the repertoire and performed this year. So I would recommend looking out for it. I've seen quite a few performances announced, for instance, of the Violin Concerto, which focuses on another thing he liked doing, which is playing with tuning systems. So um, that is because our normal tuning system is tempered in order to allow for... uh, um, transpositions into many different keys, but that doesn't matter if you are atonal, you don't go into other keys. So you can actually use instruments in different tuning systems. So he sometimes has instruments that can do that, string instruments or also uh, brass instruments, playing overtones, playing uh, harmonics that are pure and not tempered. Whereas other people, other instruments in the orchestra Play the tempered ones. And he likes, he called that a dirty sound. Um, and he liked that kind of tension. That gives it something, again, that is not normally there. And that is something, if you listen to the violin concerto, the horn concerto, um, you find much of that also. The viola sonata has aspects of that. So that would be pieces from his last period from the 1990s in particular.
0: Uh, Wolfgang, thank you so much for the interview. Thank you.